divine direction. And the thought behind this series is the fact that we are all part of something bigger and greater than ourselves. And God is telling a story through your lives. Your life is going to tell a story. And as you look back upon the years of your life, your life has already told a certain story. And the story that you are telling today, is that the story that God wants you to tell? Or is it a story that you're looking back upon and going, oh, I really want to change that. I wish I could change this. Well, today can be that day where we go, today I'm going to make a change for the future. We have a purpose as a church family and we meet together. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's behind me here. It says connect and grow and serve. And the reason why we talk about that all the time, we talk about connecting with God and with others, growing in our relationship with God and others, and ultimately serving God as we serve others. Well, the reason why we talk about that all the time is because the story that we tell, and as I'm getting older and maybe you've discovered the same thing as you're getting older life is very fast and as i look back upon my life and maybe you're discovering the same thing you're looking back and going the story that i've been telling isn't necessarily totally in line with the things of god yes i've done things for god but am i totally in line with when he says go i say yes or do we god says go do we say no When you hear and you think about God calling you as an individual, you imagine for a moment, God, the creator of the universe, knows who you are as individuals. And the scriptures tell us that he knows every intricate detail of us. He knows our thoughts before we've even had them. He knows how many hairs are on our head. He knows absolutely everything about us. He's created us. He loves us. He's sustaining us and providing for us, not just for today, but he has a home for us in heaven one day. If you know Christ as your Savior, all these things take place. And you look at them and you say, I'm part of something great. Then God says, go. And what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it, I can't do that. Or is it, why would God ask me? And we all of a sudden have this incredible amount of humility, like God could never use me. Or we have the thought of absolute fear of what if I fail? Or we have the thought of, yes, I will go forward. And then we don't do anything. On Sundays go, yes, I'm going to make a decision and move forward for God. And then Monday comes around and we go back to telling the old story once again. Through this series, we're working through a number of biblical principles. And the principles are these. We talk about start, which we talked about in previous weeks. Stop stay, go, which we're talking about today. Next week is serve and then connect and then ultimately trust. And we're talking through these biblical principles about God's divine direction and the story that he's telling in your life and in my life. And the ultimate question is, is my story in alignment with what God wants my story to be? We're going to build on the previous weeks. As we talk about go today, we're going to look at the life of Jonah. We want to learn from his mistakes and not have to make them ourselves. 
And whatever it is that God has called you, whether it's something huge and you feel like you can't overcome it, or it's something that's relatively small in your life that's a step towards something else that he has for you in the future, we know that we can go when he calls us. Our challenge through this series is simply this. Who before the do and the why before the what? God is far more interested in who you are in the, in the inside, in the spiritual sense, than rather what you do. And he's far more interested in why he is working in our life as opposed to simply what we do. Our principle is this. And every Sunday we have a principle that we seek to apply to our life. This week is choose to go when it would be easier to stay where you are. Another way of saying this is choose to go when it was sometimes more tempting to run the other direction. The more that God wants to use you in your life, the more natural fear you will have. The more opportunity for faith God will have in your life. And the more tempted you will be to quit when times become tough. But that's what it turns us back and say, God, whatever it is that you're calling me to do, I'm totally reliant upon you. What I would like you to do is to stop for a moment and say, God, what is it that you're calling me to do as opposed to what are you calling someone else to do? And what we're going to be doing is focusing upon Jesus and what he wants in our life. Hebrews chapter number 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We're going to read Jonah. Chapter number four, which is the end of the story. Jonah, the book of Jonah is in the Old Testament. He's one of what's referred to as the minor prophets. This is a time that uh, of really up and downs in his life and emotions. At the end of this time, he has seen God work absolutely remarkably, but he responded in an absolutely horrible way. So we're going to read Jonah chapter four, verses four through eleven. And then we'll make some application for our lives. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it made shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was extremely glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to a, that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, this is Jonah talking, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And that's referring to basically infant children who don't know basically left from right. Also, much cattle. We can see our own attitudes in this final response of Jonah. We're going to go back to Jonah chapter number one in just a moment's time. And we're going to walk through very quickly the story of Jonah. And then we're going to make some application. And what we we see here, we're going to see the life of Jonah. We're going to see lessons uh, of Jonah. And finally, the legacy of Jonah. And as we walk through this, I want you to discover and to think about you in your own life and the way that you respond when God, the creator of the universe, prompts your heart to go and do something, whatever that is. How will you respond? First of all, we see the life of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse number 1 and 2 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of uh, Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now this is a time period in Israel when Israel was incredibly prosperous, but also very far from God. Jonah was also already a prophet. He was working and he had had made prophecies before the king. He was God's prophet in Israel at that time. There were some other prophets that were working. Hosea was a contemporary as well as the, the prophet Amos, which both have books of the Bible also. And they're also referred to as minor prophets of the of the scriptures and, and referred to minor prophets, not because they weren't important, but because their books were small. This was a very prosperous time, but Not only was it prosperous, it was incredibly evil. The nation of Israel was very far from God. And the prophets of God were calling out. Hosea and Amos were saying, turn back, turn back, return to God. And Jonah all along was pretty comfortable in where he was until God called him to go somewhere that was absolutely foreign. Verse number two says, arise, go to Nineveh. Now, if you just humanize this for a moment and just put yourself in in Jonah's position here, I'm going through life. Everything's prosperous. Yes, people are very far from God, but I have a stable job and I'm a prophet of God. In other words, I'm a Christian and everyone knows I'm a Christian. And then God calls him and says, go to the enemy. Doing a little bit of research on the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is in modern day Iraq, which in, in the northern part of modern day Iraq, right on the Tigris River. By all accounts, it was a very beautiful place. Many commentators suggest that it was the largest city in the world at this time. So it was the mega city of the world, and it was a very evil city, and it was an enemy of Israel. And God said, I want you to go. He was a prophet of God, but he wasn't a very good prophet of God in the sense that he wasn't a willing participant. Because when he heard the word go, rather than saying yes, he absolutely said no and went the opposite direction. Verse number three, we see him running from God. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish is in modern day Spain. In other words, he was going the absolutely opposite direction. To flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want you to get that just for a moment. Flee from the presence of the Lord. 
I find this absolutely remarkable because it doesn't make sense at all, but it made a great deal of sense to Jonah at this time. Run away from the creator of the world who absolutely knows everything and he knows where everything is. And somehow he thought, I'm going to get up and run away from him. You ever feel that way when God calls you? Maybe if I just hide, then God will stop calling me and the burden of my heart will go away. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And if you know the story of Jonah, you know what takes place next. He gets out on the ship and verse number four, in other words, this is a really quick, the first four verses, all of a sudden we see a storm take place. And the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. There was some positive discipline from God. Now, some of you walked into church today and it was raining on you. I don't call that the discipline of God on your life as it sprinkled down and rained on you this morning. But God uses remarkable and unique methods to get our attention, to bring us back into his will. And he sometimes, in the best way, uses discipline that actually, in the outward, seems like a punishment, but it's ultimately to bring us back into his will. From that, as the story goes through chapter number one, the storm comes up and these unsaved or non-Jewish sailors on the boat determined that Jonah was the cause of all these problems. Jonah admitted it and he said, the only solution that you have is to kill me by throwing me into the water. Jonah was too afraid of following God and said, it would be better for you to kill me than it would be for me to go to Nineveh and be obedient to you. Through much convincing, these sailors believed that Jonah needed to be thrown over and threw him over. Jonah goes into the water, has really no idea what was going to take place next. His mind was, I'm going to drown, but then I don't have to go to Nineveh. Verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that goes on into chapter number two. And chapter number two is Jonah coming to an awareness that maybe God's trying to get my attention here. And I don't know how it went through his mind and in the consciousness of how long it took. But it says the total time he was there for three days and three nights. It doesn't tell us that he instantly goes, OK, God, I'll give up. It doesn't give that indication at all. He says he was in there for three days and three nights. And sometime during that time, he came to an understanding. He goes, do you know what? Maybe I should call out to God for help. And maybe I should say, God, all right, you have my attention now. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah had a message. He shared a message. He shared two messages. He shared a message with the sailors. 
When the sailors were questioning who was responsible for the storm and Jonah was, was made, they made aware that Jonah, through casting of lots, was the, the culprit, he preached a very short message and he said this in, in chapter 1, verse 9. And he said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah did not lack a knowledge of God. He says, I serve the one true God. That's what made the sailors so nervous. The irony was that he says, I serve the one true God who made the sea and the dry land, and I'm trying to hide from him. That's the irony that we see in the message. That was the first message that he preached. The second message that he preached was after he was vomited out of the fish, which we kind of just imagine that for a moment. It's kind of gross. And he walks and to get from the Mediterranean Sea to Nineveh wasn't some short little day trip. It would have taken him days, if not weeks, to get across all the way into Nineveh. And when he finally arrived there, it says that the, the city of Nineveh was a three-day journey across the city. That's how large the city was. And he walks one day into the city. That was one day's journey into the city. And he preaches in the Hebrew a five-word sermon. And based upon the attitude that we see in chapter number four, I don't think he stood on the street corner and shouted it out with a great deal of enthusiasm and a great deal of passion. He simply said, as it says in, in chapter 3, verse number 4, let's put our mindset in Jonah's words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I'm kind of happy about that part. I want you to die. He preached in the Hebrew. That works out to be five words. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. He preached a five-word sermon that absolutely transformed that entire city because from that, there was an incredible response. He preached a weak sermon that God took and used and transformed people's lives. I often find that myself, and maybe you do too. Like this morning, I woke up very early and thinking about this message today and, and thinking about things, and I prayed a prayer, and I say this not out of pride, but out of humility, and saying, God, will you please use this because I don't know how it's all going to work out today. And it makes me a little bit nervous. God, you're going to have to do something here. The only way that, that any response was going to come from yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown with the unenthusiastic message that it was, was that God was going to have to do something miraculous. He was simply the messenger. The response was absolutely tremendous. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. They put on this, this, clo uh, this cloth that was very uncomfortable, that showed a sense of mourning, and it showed a sense of we are wanting to change our ways. And what they would do is they put on this uncomfortable, like a Hessian clothing over them, and it would remind them every time they moved how uncomfortable and itchy it is. And they would show... Like, we are all in mourning. And everybody had a fast, and they put on this sackcloth in order to mourn before God and plead to God. From the, it says there, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then go down to verse number 10, and it says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had 
said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That made Jonah very angry. Going on to chapter number 4. And Jonah goes up to the side of the mountain, or side of a hill, and he sits there and waits. And he sits there and waits, and is waiting for God's judgment. And he's waiting for this city, that's the enemy, to come, and somehow God was going to judge them. Whether it was fire from heaven, or earthquakes, or storms, he had no idea. He was just waiting, and then nothing happened, because God listened to these people as they repented. And verse number 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, I, I mean, the way the Bible lays it out is kind of emotionless. I want you to think about what sort of things displease you exceedingly, and what's the emotion behind it. Do you, do you ever go to your, your husband or wife, you know, and you're having some sort of marital discussion, <laughs> and you say... You displease me exceedingly. Is that the way you talk? No, more likely than not, you share something and you share some emotion that is not so, so nice and wrapped up. And he's having a real, basically, he's, he's whining to God about the fact that God is too kind and too gracious and too merciful. And he says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is... Not this, what I said when I was yet in my country. In other words, God, I knew you were going to do this. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God. And merciful, slow to anger and unbounding in steadfast love. So he says, God, you have grace, you have mercy, and you have love. That's the kind of God that I want to serve. And relenting from disaster, verse 3 says, Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He goes from literally being on a mountaintop, looking down on people that have been graciously and mercifully received the love of God in their life, and he's angry about it. What are some lessons that we can learn from Jonah? We're going to walk through these lessons quite quickly because I want to learn these lessons so that we don't have to repeat them ourselves. I'd much rather learn from his bad attitude than have to experience a bad attitude myself. I love to see when God is at work around us and to see when people come to know Christ as their Savior and lives are transformed and people go from literally death to life. And we see that, but sometimes we can say, well, God, that wasn't the way that I wanted it to be. And we fail to recognize that God is at work in the world around us. And we are simply joining God in his work. Lessons from Jonah. First of all, God loves people. I'm going to walk through these lessons quite quickly. God loves people. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God loves people. Your neighbors, God loves your family, God loves the people that you don't like, and the people you love greater and more than you do. God loves people. The next lesson we see from Jonah is that God uses imperfect people. Can you relate to that? You don't have to nod your head, just inside. 
Can you relate to the fact that God uses some really imperfect people with some attitudes that really don't line up? He doesn't have everything all together. But God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for a plant? Sometimes we have imperfections because we have our mispriorities. And God still somehow allows us to be used. Thank God that we don't have to come and before him perfectly and say, God, I am no longer in any way a sinner. I've reached, now there's no such thing on this on earth, sinless perfection. Now I'm ready to be used by you. Thank God that we don't have to have something that's absolutely impossible here on earth before we can serve God. God uses imperfect people. Jonah had observed the greatest day of repentance when a city of many people estimate well over 600,000 people, if not up to a million people, had repented and turned and began to, to, to worship God. And we see here that he had the worst attitude. Next thing we see is, thank God that God is patient. And again, and again, and again. God is patient. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Can you relate to that? God has called us to do something, and we've ignored it, and then we look back upon our life and the story that our life is being told, and then God comes to us a second time and gives us a calling again. Thank God that He doesn't just give us the one and say, Oh, You're done. I can never use you again. He's continually calling us to go and he's giving us opportunity and and direction in our life. God is patient. And finally, the lesson that we learn is that God is in control. God is absolutely in control. We see that throughout this book. But there's one particular word that jumps out. It's the word appointed. And the word appointed here we see in chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, God, in his miraculous ability, could have just instantly created a fish at that very moment to appear. In other words, out of nothing, God created a fish that appeared and ate Jonah. I would suggest, though, that God years earlier, in fact, let's go back to the creation of of all the earth, created a fish knowing that that species of fish, which we're unaware of what it is, the New Testament calls it a whale. We don't know exactly what the species was, but it was a great fish. He created a fish knowing that it was going to be big enough to swallow a man one day. And he put all those things into place. And then years before, he created a particular fish that swum through the oceans, grown to a size that was huge and enough to swallow a man. And he says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. All these things had to take place in order for that one miracle to take place. Next is verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. And the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. He created a plant and it grew and it shaded Jonah. Verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Now granted, if I see a snail or a worm or any of my plants, they're dead. But God even appoints the worms to eat the plants. And he's always in control. And finally, in verse number 8, he is in control of nature and the winds. And he says, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. He changed the weather patterns to beat down on one particular man. God is in control. 
We've seen the life of Jonah. We just scratched the surface of his story. We encourage you. It's only four chapters. Go back and read the account of Jonah and read through it and begin to discover the life of Jonah. Start thinking through and processing the lessons of Jonah. And because of time, I only did a four of them, but there's many more lessons that we can learn from the life of Jonah. But also, we can see in our own life the legacy of Jonah. What are some legacies that we can apply? These are applications. With the application is, we're going to go through these quite quickly, but this is really the take-home for us. As I said before, I'm not telling you specifically, God is calling you to do this, 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 and you'll be naming off all the things. Because God, as I said before, is far more interested in the do before the do. He's far more interested in who you are rather than what we are. So let's work on the who you are before Christ. Then we're ready to hear him and respond obediently. First of all, the legacy of Jonah. My choices impact me and others. The choices that you make today, whether to obey God or to not obey God, to go or to stay or to run, they tell the story of your life. And they affect you, but also they affect others around you. They affect the other, others around you. Look at Jonah's life. His running away caused a storm to come in the ocean where it affected, I mean, it, does, it said the ocean, so therefore it's probably the entire sea. So it's not just his own boat, all the other boats around, but also those sailors on the boat whose lives were in danger. It says in verse number 10, when the men, these are the sailors, were exceedingly afraid. These men were afraid because of God getting Jonah's attention. But also, when we have obedience to follow and go where God sends us to go, that also has an effect on others. Chapter 3, verse 10, we read this earlier. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said. In other words, God was going to judge them if they did not turn back and repent. My choices affect me, but also they affect others. Your choices to go when God calls you to go, to do what it is that God calls you to do, to be who it is that God wants you to be, affects you and also affects others. The next legacy we see is the fact that God uses unique methods. And maybe even you can call yourself, God uses unique people. He uses unique methods to do his will. And we look back upon things, and I've discovered this, and probably you have too, when we've seen God working and go, that is not the way that I had that planned. And you look around and see how God orchestrated his life, and he protects us and he saves us from things. And you, you, we hear stories about how God uses storms, and how God uses fish and plants and worms and winds. And rather than going, God, why are you doing this to me? We can look back and say, God, thank you for always being at work around me and using unique methods. Now, to be honest with you, I always pray during youth camp week, God, please give us good weather. And the last couple of years, God has actually answered that prayer really well. Previous years, it was historically the hottest week of the entire year. Didn't matter what week it was, it was always the hottest week of the year. It was youth camp week. And on Sundays, I pray, God, will you please give us good weather? I pray and ask God. But you know what? When God brings the storms, 
and we look back and go, God, this wasn't what I prayed for. We can turn that around and say, God, how are you going to use this? How are you going to use this opportunity you've given to us? Because you're the one that uses unique methods. And also we see the third legacy and the final one is that it is the gospel that changes lives. It's not you, it's not me that changes lives. It is the gospel that changes lives. We see God using a selfish, angry, fear-filled man to change the course of of history for thousands of people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, it says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What we see here is that it's God through the gospel that does the changing. All we're called to do is to go. As we review the life of, of Jonah, there's a number of lessons and life lessons that you can take away there. And we're just scratching the surface today. I hope this is actually an encouragement to you. Because as you feel God calling you to go, to give, to serve, to do whatever it is specifically that God's calling you to do, I want you to know that there's a God who uses unique methods. There's a God who's absolutely in control of everything around us. God, we know that the gospel is the, the thing that changes people. It's not us. So therefore, we can have the faith to go forward so that we can be the people God wants us to be and to do the thing God wants us to do.